Hey there, this is Dave, host of the Points of No Return in History. In a second, we're going to get going with the first episode of this new series about the build-up to Pearl Harbor. I've had a lot of fun researching, writing, and creating this series, and I'm excited to share it with you. But first, I was wondering, if you had the time, could you rate and review the show, and maybe share it with a friend? It's a new podcast, and I'm hoping for it to grow. Your help could go a long way. Also, I'm always hoping to improve as a podcaster, so please reach out if you have any thoughts on how I can get better. My social media and email are in the description. Of course, you could also let me know how to improve when you rate and review the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of you. Now, on with the show. Think about one of those times you were sitting in a waiting room, standing by to be called in for something important. Maybe it was a pitch meeting with your boss. Maybe it was at a hospital as you waited for news about your child's health. You know how your stomach feels a little queasy? How your brain races? How you're anxious to know whatever's next and all you can do is wait? Japanese diplomats Kichi Saburo Nomura and Saburo Kurusu certainly felt this way on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. They'd spent a long time up to that point trying to negotiate with the United States. They sat in the diplomatic reception room at the American State Department in Washington, D.C. Nomura was late and had just rushed over from the Japanese embassy and was out of breath. He was late because all morning he and his team had been scrambling to put together a document that was to be delivered to America. The two diplomats were waiting to meet with American Secretary of State Cordell Hull. They had some hard news to share. Over the previous few years, Japan had aggressively expanded in East Asia. They felt they needed more natural resources. They also wanted to join Western powers as forces to be reckoned with on the global stage. America, meanwhile, did not respond well to this aggression. They wanted to protect their trade interests in the region, and were wary of Japan's growing military might. Negotiations between the two countries, unfortunately, did not go well. They failed to come to an understanding. By December 7th, when Nomura and Kurusu were sitting waiting to meet with Hull, Japanese officials back home had decided that diplomacy was not working and that the use of arms was the answer. Earlier that morning, Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. The two diplomats were to hand over a document to Hull that ended negotiations. While waiting to meet Hull, Nomura and Kurusu did not know that Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. Japanese officials had been working hard to keep the planned attack a secret. Still, the two diplomats knew that negotiations would now be done. They waited with anxiety. At 2.05 in the afternoon that same day, that is, December 7, 1941, American Secretary of State Cordell Hull received a phone call from President Roosevelt that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. Hull had been in intense negotiations that fall with Nomura and Kurusu. The two ambassadors were set to meet with Hull when Roosevelt called. Given the news of the attack, Hull wondered what he should do with them. At that moment, he wanted to send them away. On the phone, however, Roosevelt had said to talk to them quickly without discussing the attack. It was not a comfortable meeting. Nomura and Kurusu gave Hull the document, which he had already seen because it had been intercepted by American intelligence. Hull gave them a short lecture about how false and misleading it was. Hull wouldn't let Nomura respond, and he asked them to leave. Although Hull shook Nomura's hand when the Japanese diplomat extended it, he grumbled, quote, scoundrels and pissants as they left. Negotiations were officially done. In this four-part series, we will cover how it got to this point, 
how it happened that Japan decided it needed to attack America, how the two superpowers failed to find common ground, how diplomacy failed. America and Japan spent months negotiating in 1941 prior to Pearl Harbor. It all, unfortunately, turned out to be in vain. After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, America declared war on Japan, and the war in the Pacific had begun. There was no turning back. The Japanese attack was a point of no return. There are the usual suspects when it comes to assigning blame for the outbreak of war. You could look at Japanese aggression in China and Southeast Asia, or the American embargo on Japanese goods. We will cover these events and give them their proper recognition when considering what caused war. However, it's the small things that intrigued me as I read and researched about the build-up to Pearl Harbor. I learned about miscommunication between America and Japan as they negotiated. I learned about mistranslations as they negotiated. And I learned about missed opportunities for the United States to be prepared for the attack on Pearl Harbor, including neglected stolen messages that would have tipped off what was going to happen. I came to feel that the war in the Pacific was not inevitable, at least in small part due to these less well-known incidents. While these events might not have been the most important reason there was a war, they go a long way in explaining how far apart America and Japan were. These missed opportunities would come when Japan and America were negotiating and tensions were rising in mid to late 1941. First, the stage had to be set, and that's what we'll do on this episode. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll. On today's episode, we will look at the stakes for the negotiations between America and Japan in 1941, as well as the events that set this up. And we will see how these negotiations started. Spoiler alert, they didn't start well. There was massive miscommunication. Japan had been aggressive in expanding its empire in East Asia. America was wary of Japan's growing power. The two were set on a course towards conflict. Japan was quiet. It was the mid-19th century, and the country was nowhere to be found on the world stage. It lived in self-imposed isolation. Once Japan spoke up, however, it wouldn't be long before the world started to notice. Between the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Japan became outward-focused, whereas before it had been self-isolated. Trade, military, democracy, Japan was catching up to the world. It would also imitate the rest of the world in a more concerning way. Imperialism. This troubled the rest of the world. Western powers had colonies in Asia. They had economic interests there as well. Wasn't this global concern about Japanese imperialism hypocritical? At least Japan thought as much. European countries had colonies all around the world. Why couldn't Japan enjoy the same? Japan intended to return Asia to its own people. It would kick colonists out. It would keep communism out now a growing threat from Russia. It would create economic stability for its own citizens and other Asians. At least, this is what Japan believed. In short, Japan would look to build an East Asian empire. In July of 1937, Japan invaded China. This was done after tensions boiled over at the Marco Polo Bridge. The Japanese felt they had to defend themselves and their interests, but they also felt they needed to battle for the benefit of all of East Asia. On July 27th, Japanese Prime Minister Fumimaro Kanoye made a declaration to the country's legislature. Japan needed to fight for East Asia to create a, quote, new order there. From Japan's perspective, the goal of what was called a, quote, Greater East Asia New Order was to create peace and stability in the region. 
and to do so for Asians, too many of whom had been under the colonialist rule of Western powers. Japan also felt it needed more room and natural resources because it was located on a relatively small island. This is why they had taken Korea in 1910. This is why they had taken Manchuria in the early 1930s, an action that created a border with China and caused the conditions for the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Manchuria was the piece of land between China and the Korean Peninsula. Japan had taken it, placed its military there, and declared it to be a puppet state. The goal of a, quote, new order is also why Japan would fight a war against China. They felt they would create stability in East Asia and do so for all Asians. They were also motivated to stop the spread of communism, which was threatening to take over China. In fact, the country was in the middle of a civil war between nationalist and communist forces before Japan invaded. Japan's war with China started out well, and they amassed many victories. However, eventually they became bogged down in a long, drawn-out war. There were many reasons to feel pessimistic about it. It was causing a great economic toll, and there were many Japanese lives lost. Then, something happened to spur on renewed hope in the war effort and further Japanese aggression. Germany started steamrolling through Europe. Quote, Don't miss the bus, the Japanese military was quoted as saying. As Hitler took down France and threatened England in 1940, their Southeast Asian colonies were exposed. In this power vacuum, Japan took northern Indochina, the region where Vietnam is now. It had been held by the French at the time, but the Japanese took it for its resources. Then, Japan joined the tripartite pact with Italy and Germany. The thinking behind the move was that it would deter a fight with the United States, who would have to think about how Germany and Italy would respond should they get too aggressive with Japan. Meanwhile, America pushed back against many of these moves. They didn't like Japan's involvement in the tripartite pact. In fact, they would never come to like it. It would make them more distrustful of Japan as they negotiated. In response to the Japanese move to take northern Indochina, America put down economic sanctions on Japan. This also motivated the United States to further help the Chinese in their fight against the Japanese. America wanted Japan out of China. America did not want Japan to expand its empire. They had trade interests to defend. And they were concerned about Japan's aggressive nature towards other countries. By the spring of 1941, the stage was set for negotiations between Japan and America. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you felt you understood the other person, only to find out later that you were still confused? Or that you had misheard them? Maybe it's out of hopeful thinking this happens, that you hear what you want to hear. Or maybe it's out of miscommunication. I sometimes feel this way talking to my wife. Sometimes I thought I understood what she wanted from me only to find out later I had misheard her. By the way, babe, if you're listening, when this happens, it's almost always my fault. <laughs> America and Japan must have felt this way in 1941. In the spring and early summer, the Japanese and Americans attempted to resolve their differences. However, there will be a lot of work for them to come to an agreement. Much of the diplomacy revolved around what was called a draft understanding. This extensive document addressed many things, including trade and economics, as well as the China War. It was written in early April. U.S. State Department officials saw it as in the interests of hardline imperialists of Japan. While Secretary of State Cordell Hull was also concerned, he believed there was room for negotiation. Things would break down from there. Hull met with Nomura on April 14th. This was the kind of situation where communication and diplomacy needed to be clear and precise. The consequences were too large for it not to be this way. Hull was straightforward about his desire to find common ground with the draft understanding, but he was not upfront about the extent of his concerns. 
This left Nomura to think that America and Japan were closer to reaching an understanding than they actually were. Holt tried to be clearer when he talked with Nomura a couple days later. He introduced what became known as his, quote, four principles. These principles were tough and should have signaled to Nomura that there would be a lot of work to do for America and Japan to see eye to eye. These were the principles, quote, respect for the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of each and all nations, support of the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries, support of the principle of equality, including equality of commercial opportunity, non-disturbance of the status quo in the Pacific, except as the status quo may be altered by peaceful means, end quote. From there, however, the mistakes continued. Nomura did not send home Hull's four principles. By not doing this, he failed to clarify America's strict expectations on Japan. Instead, he did send home an updated draft understanding with a note attached. In the note, he wrote that the document was, generally speaking, acceptable to the Americans. Either he had not fully understood Hull, or Hull had failed to accurately or forcefully communicate American concern about recent Japanese actions. In any case, Nomura communicated to the Japanese leaders that America and Japan were very much closer than they actually were. This breakdown would have ramifications later when it deteriorated the trust between the two countries. Japanese Foreign Minister Yosuke Matsuoka, however, did not trust America's supposed agreement to the draft understanding. Quote, Clearly that's not a U.S. document, he said. That thing has been written by the Japanese, end quote. Matsuoka would push a new agenda forward in negotiations. One historian calls this the, quote, Matsuoka plan. He felt that others were being too soft in their attitude towards America. He believed that he knew how to negotiate, and his plan reflected this different approach. There were many changes in the Matsuoka plan. One stood out. The updated plan took out a sentence from the draft understanding. Previously, it read that, quote, Japanese activities in the southwestern Pacific area shall be carried on by peaceful means without resorting to arms. No longer did it say this. Matsuoka believed that the Americans would react with respect to a hardline approach. As it turned out, Hull didn't respond this way. Quote, so this means there is no guarantee that they won't go south? Hull muttered when he saw the Matsuoka plan. He was concerned, as America had always been concerned, about Japanese militarism and aggression. America came back to the Japanese with a follow-up to the Matsuoka plan on June 21st. There were a number of counterpoints. America demanded that Japan leave the tripartite pact. It also expected Japan to scale down its military from China. The fallout from the breakdown in communication between Hull and Nomura began to be felt. The Japanese felt the Roosevelt administration had altered its expectations. They felt shocked and alarmed. All the while, they were basing their feelings on the assumption that America had approved the draft understanding. The two sides had failed to come to an agreement. Things would only get worse. As the Matsuoka plan had indicated, Japan would soon look to keep expanding south. On June 30th, Matsuoka received a message from a German ambassador. It was an appeal for Japan to attack Russia. Hitler had sent the request to the ambassador through Nazi Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. Matsuoka also wanted Japan to attack Russia. He saw the Soviets being in a vulnerable position because of Germany's invasion from the West. And he wanted Japan to be able to claim to have helped its Nazi ally in taking down Russia. 
Matsuoka made his case at a liaison conference on June 30th. As he argued, he was armed with Germany's appeal for Japan to attack North, a request he had received that morning. In a, quote, vomit of fire, as someone described it, he made his demands. He had Hitler and Germany on his side, the same Germany that was making great gains in its attack on Russia from the West. In order to make his case to attack Russia, he had to convince other Japanese officials who felt the right strategy was to move on southern Indochina. They felt the moment had lined up perfectly to take an area rich with natural resources. The European colonial powers who had interests in the region were distracted by Hitler's war back home. Matsuoka wanted to delay the action on southern Indochina and instead focus on Russia. At the June 30th conference, he was making a persuasive case, and the men representing the navy and army began to seriously contemplate the postponement. However, a speech from the vice chief of staff of the army stopped this consideration. The Japanese military did not want to battle Russia while it was in a war against China. Moving on southern Indochina was an easier play. At the conference, Prime Minister Kanoye finally chimed in. They would not attack Russia. Rather, they would head south. Before the policy could be officially confirmed, Emperor Hirohito would need to give his authorization. An imperial conference was held two days later for this purpose. At the conference, Kanoye presented to Hirohito Japan's strategy to take Indochina and head south. According to the plan, they would take southern Indochina, currently occupied by Vichy France, which was the French state set up after the country's surrender to Nazi Germany. While they preferred to take the territory through diplomacy, they would also take up arms should they be rebuffed. There was a section in the document that caused some worry. Quote, the empire shall not flinch from war with Britain and the United States. End quote. However, the Japanese had answers, or at least justifications, to the worry about American and British intervention. As one concerned Japanese official asked about the possibility of war with America and Britain, he received an answer that they would take southern Indochina by diplomacy, not arms, and that they wouldn't take more land. They reasoned that this wouldn't cause a military response from the Western powers. This was sufficient for Hirohito, who approved the plan. After it was given the imperial seal, it became official. Japan would head south. Meanwhile, in America, U.S. decoders had captured the southern Indochina plan. Roosevelt was startled. Would Japan really take a chance on a military response from America and Britain? Japan set up a deadline of July 24th for Vichy France to allow Japanese troops open passage before entering by arms. Vichy acquiesced on July 22nd. The Japanese ambassador in Vichy, France, sent a telegraph back home celebrating the ease with which Japan took southern Indochina. Quote, The reason why the French so readily accepted the Japanese demands was that they saw how resolute was our determination and how swift our will, the note read. It continued, quote, In short, they had no chance but to yield. As it turns out, the Americans would not be as happy with this news as the Japanese ambassador was. The telegraph that the Japanese ambassador in Vichy, France sent back home was intercepted by the United States. Soon, Hull saw it. For him, the Japanese diplomacy was not peaceful, but forceful. This made him angry. Japan's invasion of Indochina was too much for Roosevelt to ignore. Hull wanted an embargo and voiced his opinion to the president. He wanted this even though it would provoke the country's relations and might incite a Japanese attack. On July 26th, Roosevelt froze all Japanese assets. Other countries did the same, including the Netherlands and Britain. 
and soon Roosevelt blocked all oil exports to Japan. The results were significant. Trade between the countries stopped, an outcome that greatly threatened the Japanese economy. For example, halting the exchange of silk was important in and of itself. Japan was the world's biggest exporter of silk, and America the world's biggest consumer. Then, of course, most significantly, the embargo threatened Japan's oil supply and its war capabilities. America sent Japan four-fifths of its oil. According to Naval Chief of Staff Osami Nagano, without an American supply, Japan only had enough oil for two years, or even worse, 18 months if there was war. Japan did not take the embargo well. They felt it was completely unfair. They had not taken Indochina through force, but rather through diplomacy. They felt trapped by the forces all around them, America, Britain, China, and the Dutch, or ABCD for short. The Japanese press called it the, quote, ABCD encirclement. In addition to the embargo, Japan noted Western military bases that spanned from Australia to Singapore to the northern Aleutian Islands. Now, Western nations had cut them off from trade, and they would need to foster economic self-dependence. They would look for this by continuing to expand their empire in Southeast Asia, which was rich in resources like rubber. Meanwhile, America was not impressed by Japan's claim to be encircled. Hull said that if Japan felt that way, the country itself was responsible for creating that state of affairs. America was also not impressed that Japan had taken Indochina through diplomacy rather than violence. For his part, Hull responded in anger, like they had used military means. The Japanese invasion of Indochina and the ensuing embargo ratcheted up the tension between America and Japan. The feeling of war was in the air. The country's diplomats would have a lot of work to do. It was going to be hard for the two countries to come to an understanding. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Points of No Return in History. Next week, we will continue our series, Japan Attacks America and the Small Things That Led to It. I am grateful for two historians whose works I have consulted for this series. This includes John Tolan's book, The Rising Sun, as well as Ari Hada's book, Japan 1941. For a more in-depth look at the build-up to Pearl Harbor, these are great resources. Please rate and review the show, and please subscribe. It really helps us out. Be on the lookout for the release of next week's episode on Wednesday, November 25th. Have a great week, everyone.